Hello and welcome back to the Flaming Grenade Serial Podcast. If you'd like to read the ebook, you can find it on Amazon. And just to let you know, there are two editions. The one that I am reading from for the podcast is the teen edition, which is the cheaper edition as well. So here we go with the Flaming Grenade. Chapter 77, Taormina, Sicily, Italy. Chung woke early, despite their late arrival. The chef, who hadn't gotten any sleep, busily put together Chung's usual breakfast, rice porridge, jongbing, which are thin pancakes, and chongfun, rice noodle rolls. One of Ping's assistants shuffled hurriedly into the kitchen just as the chef finished. The assistant rolled the cart up to Chung's room, hoping he wasn't late. Sung, on the other hand, came straight to the kitchen and began raiding whatever he could find. The chef wrung his hands in despair, but his fear of the angry giant kept him silent and sulking in the corner. When Sung was satisfied and left the kitchen without a word, the chef went back to work, beginning again to cook breakfast for the remaining people in Chung's entourage. Ping was out on the deck by the pool, focused completely on his Tai Chi routine as the sun rose over the ocean horizon. The sun warmed the patio and shone brightly off the water. Ping basked in the familiarity of his routine in the peaceful, serene poolside. The morning routine was his only individual time, and he never missed a day, no matter where in the world they were or what crisis they, they were facing, Chung or the company. As Ping finished the routine, he stood in silence, his white robes moving faintly in the light breeze. He breathed deeply and refocused his attention before heading back into the building to face the long day ahead. Chung was finishing his breakfast and called for his personal aide to come in for his morning massage, or Tuinai treatment. The masseuse was an experienced, muscled man who was flanked by three young Chinese girls. He directed the massage and led the three girls as they worked over Chung's muscles. None of them said a word during the treatment. The last who had spoken did not fare well when sent back to their family in poor villages. When finished, the group led Chung into the shower and bathed him while he stood under the spray of scalding water. Ping directed the other servants to clean the breakfast table and make up the room. When finished showering, Chung's attendants dried him off and then dressed him in a light-colored silk suit with a Mao-cut jacket. He dismissed the wet attendants with a wave and called for Ping to order his car. Come, let's go. I must speak with the fool priest, Antonelli. Ping bowed in response, not saying a word. Song appeared in the hallway and walked with them to the car. Ping took his usual position in the front seat, and Sung sat in back with Chung. He would guide them to the church in Trekistani. When Sung arrived the night before, he had detailed everything that had happened since his arrival in Sicily. He told Chung that the priest was refusing to cooperate and explained how he found one badge but left it in the priest's care. Chung reacted badly at first, but eventually realized it was the right decision. Sung explained that after he disposed of Luigi's body, he returned to the church to, to surveil the priest to see if he would gather up the badges to relocate them. Sung had been disappointed. However, during the afternoon, an American couple walked into the church and stayed for a few hours. When they left, they carried garbage bags like they had helped the priest clean. But to be certain, Sung followed them back to their hotel. Sung got pictures of the American couple and hung around the hotel waiting for them to reemerge. When they did, he watched them walk to dinner with another man and then returned straight to the hotel for the night. Sung wanted to break into the hotel to search their room, but had not had an opportunity. Only their rental car remained unwatched. Chung was pleased with Sung's work and directed him to print the pictures he took to forward to the cyber technicians for identification. He also ordered Sung to search the American's room and the other man's room the next day when they would certainly be out sightseeing. 
In the back of the car, Chung instructed Sung to drop him off at the church before heading to the hotel. He was going to take some time speaking to Archbishop Antonelli. Chung could be very persuasive and was used to getting his way. He saw no reason why the simple Italian priest would be any different. Chapter 78 Linguolosa, Sicily, Italy So what have you done so far? Pietro asked Giuseppe at the bar while they were having cafe. Carmela smiled at Giuseppe and retreated to the back of the store, not wanting to interfere with his work. Giuseppe was dressed in civilian clothes as per Pietro's instructions. His gun was in a holster on his waist underneath a sport coat. He felt funny going to work out of u- uniform, but he was, simp- he was a simple officer and not used to any special assignments. Giuseppe looked around, worried some of the customers would be listening, but the bar was empty aside from Mario. I conducted a search for witnesses and found no one. She was not killed in the clearing where she was found, that much is certain. How so? Well, there, is, there was no blood and no signs of a struggle. The wounds on her body, Giuseppe took a sip of the scalding cafe, were too terrible for there not to be blood or signs of a fight. So what did you do? The mountain is a large place. Giuseppe thought Pietro's questions were formed more as a critique than a new partner joining the investigation late. He felt like he was at the academy, being drilled by his instructors after a practical exercise. He explained to Pietro how he had the forest rangers come up with a list of all the buildings on the north and east sides of the mountain, and how he and Vincenzo went to each one to see if there was any evidence or if there were any witnesses. That is how we found the cemetery, Giuseppe crossed himself. Well, Moretti was most likely killed near near there, and she probably stayed in Trecastani, or maybe Zaffarena. I haven't gotten any calls from hotel owners. I put out the word we were looking for where she stayed. But she could have been in a house of a friend, or maybe went straight up the mountain when she arrived. Pietro picked up his hat from the counter and, without a word, walked out the door. Giuseppe, surprised, left Euro on the counter and hurried after him. They were using an unmarked Alfa Romeo from the station, and Pietro got into the driver's seat. He handed, he held out his hand until Giuseppe placed the keys in his palm. Apparently, Pietro was going to drive. So where to first, Giuseppe asked. We need to visit someone in Trecastani. Pietro provided no explanation and sped off, narrowly missing a teenager driving a scooter down the otherwise empty road. Chapter 79, Trecastani, Sicily, Italy. I awoke to a loud banging at the door. As the fog of sleep, sleep cleared, I realized the noise was on our door, and I jolted out of bed to answer I got up too fast, and I almost fell from a sudden bout of dizziness. I held on to the bed, and slower this time stood up straight. Un momento, I called out. I needed to find some clothes. Sarah got out of bed and shuffled into the bathroom, the sheets modestly wrapped around her. I found the clothes from the night before on the bathroom floor and hopped into the pants and pulled on a polo shirt. I made sure to shut the bathroom door behind my wife and turned the key to open the door to the hallway. The banging hadn't stopped, and I was almost punched in the face when the door swung open. The hotel clerk's hands were gesticulating wildly, and he looked frantic. Signore, signore, he implored, come quickly. Che cosa? What is it? I asked, remembering that Italian phrase. Zyra joined me at the door, looking fresh and put together. How does she do that? What's happening? I don't know, and I can't understand him when he is speaking so fast in Italian and English. Zyra took over the questioning and eventually realized what he was trying to say. It's our car, she explained. He says someone broke into our car last night, and he is very upset. A guest at his hotel was robbed. We didn't have anything in the car, I replied. Well, let's go take a look. We'll have to call the rental place. We followed the clerk down the stairs and then down into the hotel's cramped and underground garage. It's a good thing we got a small rental car, because nothing else would have fit. The cars were jammed into the small basement garage like pieces of a live Tetris game. Our car was situated right in the middle of the room, and we squeezed past the other cars to get to ours. 
The clerk explained that when the attendant parked all of the cars last night, everything was fine. This morning, when he went down to drive all of the cars out of the garage and out onto the street so they could be used, he noticed ours looked like it had an open window. He walked closer and realized the window was not rolled down, but broken. All the compartments were open to include the small trunk and the rental papers and vehicle instruction manual were strewn about the floorboards. None of the other cars in the garage had been touched. They were looking for something specific, I said, suddenly realizing I had left the badges in our room in all of the excitement. I turned and raced up the stairs to make sure they were still hidden where I had put them the night before. I stumbled with the key and finally opened the door and ran to my hiding place. I breathed a sigh of relief when I felt the badges still wrapped in their cloth coverings. I put them in my pocket and returned downstairs, much to the surprise of the clerk. I had to pee, sorry, I said, and left it at that. The clerk called the policia, and we waited in the lobby for almost an hour for them to arrive. I was tired, and the adrenaline from the morning soon wore off. We hadn't planned on waking so early, and I just wanted to get a few more minutes of sleep. When the police arrived, they took our complaint, a denuncia, they called it, and took a few pictures of the car. They made copies on the hotel machine and left one with us. I was fairly certain they weren't going to be spending any more time trying to track down whoever did this. That made me feel so much better. I called the rental agency and they weren't open yet. We decided we would call later and we went up to our room to shower and get dressed for the day. As we got to the door, Heinrich peeked out of his door and asked what all the commotion had been about. I explained what happened and we agreed to meet downstairs for breakfast in an hour. That would give us plenty of time. We showered and I explained to Zyra what happened the night before. I showed her our new smartphones, and I logged into the cloud storage on the, net, on the tablet to download the files Robert uploaded. The satellite map was huge, and it was difficult to view on the 10-inch screen. We scanned the photo section by section. Zyra downloaded the journal to her smartphone using the Wi-Fi connection. We needed to find a cellular phone store to purchase SIM cards. I put it on my mental checklist of things to do. There was a knock on the door, this time a light knock, and Zyra opened it to find Heinrich in the hallway. I made sure both badges were in my pockets, and we each took our new, our new phone. I locked the door behind us, and we all went out to get breakfast. I brought my tablet, and we all scooted close together to look at the screen. We used Heinrich's topo map to guide our search through the images. We skipped over the grid he searched yesterday, and worked chronologically in the order Heinrich had mapped out. Heinrich didn't ask why we weren't interested in that section. We were just supposed to be looking for a good trail to use and a good place to explore. So it was a bit awkward hiding the fact we were looking for a graveyard around some rundown buildings. Zyra and Heinrich pointed excitedly at the same moment. There, Zyra exclaimed. Heinrich looked puzzled that Zyra reacted so excitedly, and we were confused at his reaction. I zoomed in on the photo until it began to lose resolution. It wasn't very clear at that level of zoom, but they could make out the crumbling walls of two buildings, and behind them, in a small clearing, there were what appeared to be ten stones, arranged in two straight lines. They were obviously man-made. Nothing in nature is that symmetrical. Heinrich caught his breath. What is it? Syrah asked, putting her hand on his shoulder. That's it, he said. That's the place. We both waited for him to go on. My dad, he, um, Heinrich faltered. I found a note he wrote. I found it last week, and he, well, he said he was on patrol on the mountain, and, and what, I asked, even though I was pretty sure I knew the ending. He saw something up on the mountain. Heinrich looked up towards Mount Etna. <coughs> he said it was horrible. They ran into a group of carabinieri. It was a massacre. All but three men were killed by, by, some, by, by some thing. I don't know, but he said it was some sort of monster. Three men were still alive, and my father helped them bury the bodies, then let them go. Then, somewhere up north, he and his partner ran into two Italians and were in a firefight. 
A few days after the firefight, they ran into him. A single tear ran down Heinrich's cheek. It was the same man they had helped him on Etna. He was shot, and he died in my father's arms. It was an accident, Heinrich. They didn't know. Zyra tried to comfort him, but he was very upset. She rubbed his back as he hunched over, trying to regain control of his emotions. He was never the same when he got back. It always haunted him. I think he always wondered about the other officer, was afraid that, that he left him dying out in the woods, lost from his family. No, Heinrich. Zyra lifted his head with her hand under his chin. The other man, my grandfather, found him. He was alive when they found him, and he was able to pass along a message to his family before he died. His sister, at this point, Zyra was overcome by emotion. I continued. His sister is Zyra's grandmother. The Carabinieri officer was Zyra's great uncle. Chapter 80, Trecastani, Sicily, Italy. Pietro screeched to a stop in front of the Chiesa Madre. Giuseppe closed his eyes, willing his stomach to stop churning. Pietro's driving made him sick, and Pietro looked at him and laughed, mentioning something about how green he looked. Giuseppe hadn't been carsick since childhood, but this was worse than he remembered it being. When he was able to move, he unclicked his seatbelt and opened the door. He stood and held on to the car, disappointed. Getting out of the car didn't cure his sickness. His stomach tightened, and he ran to a nearby bush where he lost his breakfast. "'Feel better,' Pietro laughed. "'Better than ten seconds ago, but I still feel like crap,' Giuseppe groaned. "'Here, drink this.' Pietro tossed Giuseppe a bottle of Coca-Cola. Giuseppe waited a moment for the pressure to subside, then cracked the lid to the whoosh of escaping gas. When safe, he opened the bottle and took a long pull on the Coke. His stomach was finally calming down, helped by the carbonation in the soda. The streets outside the church were empty save for a shiny black Mercedes. A driver sat behind the wheel, his face hidden behind the deeply tinted windows. Giuseppe straightened out his clothes and grabbed his sport coat from the back seat. He pulled his arms into the jacket as they walked toward the church door. The Chinese driver wasn't paying any attention. He had music playing on the radio and was taking the opportunity to nap after the early wake-up call in Taormina. A shadow crossed the windshield, waking him, and he looked to see two men in suit coats just arriving at the front door of the church. The driver swore and struggled to unbuckle his seatbelt while reaching for his gun. Who were these two? They didn't look like townspeople coming to church to pray. Pietro tried the door and found it locked. He banged on the door and no one answered. After waiting for ten seconds or so, Giuseppe turned to leave, but Pietro grabbed his arm and banged again on the door. He repeated himself every fifteen seconds until finally a small wooden speakeasy, protected by an iron grill, opened. Halfway and two Asian eyes looked out of them. Pietro began speaking in rapid-fire Italian, and the man behind the door growled, unable to keep up or formulate any words. In frustration, the man shut the speakeasy, and Pietro again knocked on the door until it was reopened. Again, he broke out into a rapid-fire dissertation. Giuseppe tried hard not to laugh, because Pietro was talking gibberish. He mentioned something about the beach and birds and the new movie that just came out and hamburgers. Pietro was, just, was betting the Asian man would not be able to understand his rapid speech and would get flustered. Not able to deter the visitors through the speakeasy, Song decided to open the door and allow the two men to see his weapon. That was generally a good deterrent. When the door was opened, Sung growled and brandished his machine gun. However, the man continued to speak, like he had not even noticed the weapon. Antonelli appeared at Sung's side and offered to translate. Sung attempted to block Antonelli from being able to speak to the two men, but Pietro began to excite, speak excitedly at Antonelli. When the door opened, the driver relaxed. Sung wouldn't have opened the door if there was a problem or any danger. He turned the radio back up and closed his eyes. Antonelli worked his way around Sung's bulk, and recognition passed over him when he got a good view of Pietro. He quickly masked the recognition and continued to speak to Pietro, 
but Giuseppe noticed it and was again completely confused. Antonelli and Pietro transitioned into the Sicilian dialect and continued their conversation, working their way slowly deeper inside the chapel. Giuseppe glanced around the chapel and saw two other Chinese men. One was standing in the aisle, dressed in traditional Chinese garb with a long Fu Manchu mustache and braided goatee. The other was seated in a pew and looked disdainfully at the interruption. He was wearing a dark, expensive-looking suit, and his hair was plastered to his head with some sort of gel. Giuseppe glanced up over his shoulder at the choir loft and noticed another gunman there glaring out over the balcony. Four to one weren't great odds. Giuseppe felt a band of sweat form on his temple. It felt awfully warm in the chapel. The seated man barked an order at Sung, who shut and locked the front door behind them. Then the man, who was obviously in command of the group, motioned for Pietro and Giuseppe to sit. Pietro walked to the pew across the nave from the man and stood, maintaining a position of power over the seated man. Giuseppe followed suit, standing just behind Pietro, trying to appear confident. They stood in silence for a full minute, and the short Chinese man staring, stared daggers at Pietro and at his insolence. Pietro smiled and crossed his arms, waiting for the Chinese to make the first move. Finally, Chung spoke. "'What do you want?' Pietro replied in Italian. "'Speak English!' the man screamed in a high-pitched voice. "'As you wish,' Pietro said mockingly. "'We are humble Catholics, come to pray and confess.' I'm Pietro. This is Giuseppe. Pietro swept his arm out in Giuseppe's direction. Pietro stopped, waiting for Chung to reciprocate the introduction. When the Chinese man saw Pietro was not going to continue, he acquiesced. I am Mr. Chung, and the church is closed for a private affair. You must leave at once. Ah, but this is God's house, no? God's house is always open. Isn't that right, father? Antonelli bowed and replied, Yes, my son. God's love is upon, open to all who enter here. Chung was incensed, out of patience, and ready to explode. I said, get out! His minions raised their weapons and pointed them at the carabinieri officers. Pietro clucked his tongue disapprovingly. Mr. Chung, please, reverence. The scene was becoming so comical, Giuseppe was finding it difficult not to laugh, even with guns pointed at him. He was too smart to laugh and be rewarded with a bullet in the head. That would totally ruin his day. Antonelli chimed in. Mr. Chung! Please, allow me to take confession of these two humble followers. It won't take long, and then we can proceed. Mr. Chung did not like the idea one bit, but he was confused by the attitude of the two Italian men. It had been years since someone had dared talk that way to him. The tall one even told him to be quiet. The insolence. But Chung was not the man he was because he was stupid. He had a feeling it would be wiser to allow the men to conduct their business and be on their way. No reason to call attention at this point. He nodded and motioned Antonelli to proceed to the confessional. The three men went towards the aisle of the church. Giuseppe sat in a pew close to the confessional booth, and Pietro entered first. Sung followed close behind and stood a few meters from the booth, his weapon held casually at his side. However, Giuseppe knew he would strike as fast as a scorpion sting, should he sense any danger. "'Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned,' Antonelli chuckled. "'Surprised I am not. Who is this man, and what does he want?' He is a very powerful man. He owns businesses in every region of the world and owns China's largest energy company. So why is he here? For the same reason as you, the death of Moretti. Antonelli briefly explained his dealings with Chung and Chung desperate, Chung's desperate desire to collect all thirteen of the stones so he could harness their power for his commercial interests. That is insane, Pietro hissed. For one thing, it is too unstable. He would have to reunite the two halves together, and for another... The stone's power cannot be used for profit. It would destroy us. He understands nothing. 
He is consumed by his own greed and power. He thinks he can do anything, Pietro. We cannot allow him to keep the stones. There was a knock on the booth. Sung decided Pietro had spent enough time to confess a multitude of sins. It was Giuseppe's turn. Pietro turned back as he was about to leave the booth. If things go bad, hit the floor and roll under a pew. Before Antonelli could respond, Pietro was gone, and Giuseppe entered the booth. Pietro proceeded to the apse and knelt before the altar to pray. Giuseppe hadn't been to confession for years and was extremely uncomfortable in the booth. It has been a long time, then, Antonelli asked. Giuseppe was shocked and then realized he must have been fidgeting loudly. Yes. Well, if you are able to help Pietro, then God will have a special place for you. I don't even know what it is we are doing. I was just investigating the murder of Officer Moretti, and he showed up, and now we're here. He will tell you in good time. Trust him, he is a good man. So you do know each other? Yes, for many years. You must go, and don't stay away so long next time. Giuseppe opened the door, and Antonelli followed from his side of the booth. Pietro stood, crossing himself, and walked back to Chung. Giuseppe crossed through the row and met Pietro in the nave. Chung was surprised when they stopped, not exiting the church as, a, as agreed. Pietro spoke first this time. It's time for you and your thugs to leave. He looked at Song and the man in the balcony. Excuse me? Chung said incredulously. Are you Catholic? Of course not. Thank you for coming, but visiting hours are over. The archbishop must prepare for noonday mass. Giuseppe didn't know Pietro very well, but decided he must have a plan. The only outcome of any plan Giuseppe could think of ended in gunfire and his death. He wouldn't die after only one date with Carmela. No way. Sir, Pietro prodded. To Giuseppe's complete shock, Chung stood and without a word walked to the door. At the door he turned and looked directly at Antonelli. His meaning was clear. Chung turned and left the building. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Flaming Grenade. Um, again, I apologize for any mispronunciations of names, and I'm not even really attempting to do accents because that would just make things worse. So hopefully you create them in your mind. Hope you're enjoying this. Please subscribe and share, and I will catch you on the next episode of the Flaming Grenade Serial Podcast.